0: Welcome back from the break. Uh, and uh, for those joining us online at the 2015 Cato Institute Surveillance Conference, uh, I've been fascinated by uh, everything so far. But I'm, I'm especially excited uh, by, uh, by this panel because I think it's uh, something that's so seldom done. And uh, the depressing number of, of, uh, of panels and hearings I've attended on surveillance topics um, to actually hear uh, something about the targets of surveillance. Unsurprisingly, because very often those uh, those folks' identities are secret, with very few exceptions. Um, we have with us today uh, Asya Bundawi, from whom I have shamelessly stolen the title of this session. Uh, she's a documentary filmmaker and journalist who's done work for the BBC, Vice, HBO Films, and Al Jazeera, uh, and is working on a Kickstarter-funded uh, project called Uh, the feeling of being watched, which we'll see a short excerpt from uh, as soon as I'm done with our uh, introductions. Uh, We have Faisal Gill, who uh, is an attorney in D.C., was formerly a senior policy advisor for the Department of Homeland Security, uh, was a U.S. Navy JAG attorney, uh, was a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Naval Reserve, was a Republican candidate uh, for the Virginia House of Delegates, and also, as was revealed by Glenn Greenwald at The Intercept, uh, was for several years targeted for surveillance Uh, under FISA. His emails were read for several years, uh, even after he had held uh, a a top-secret position with the government and been vetted and cleared. Um, And finally, we have Jumana Musa, who is a uh, human rights attorney and uh, advocate for racial justice. She's a privacy and national security uh, counsel at the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers uh, and former work, formerly worked with the uh, Border Community Coalition, the, uh, the Rights Working Group, and Amnesty International. Uh, so. To set things up and give us something to riff on, Uh, we're going to see a short excerpt of the forthcoming documentary, The Feeling of Being Watched. Do you want to say anything to set up what we're about to see?
1: Yeah, sure. So The Feeling of Being Watched is a feature-length documentary film uh, that my co-director Alex Bushy and I, who's in the audience, have been working on for the past three years. And it's a look at a um, community on the south side of Chicago that suspects it's been under surveillance since the 90s it also happens to be the neighborhood where i grew up um, and so what we're going to look right look at right now is this per- pervasive sense within um, the neighborhood that it's under surveillance uh, and people describing directly their uh, experiences living under surveillance so we're going to watch the first 10 minutes of the beginning of the film which kind of encompasses well.
0: right let's see that uh, let's see that clip
1: In the neighborhood where I grew up, there were three truths we all held to be self-evident. One, everyone's phone is tapped. Two, that stranger sitting in a car parked down the block is probably an FBI agent. Three, that building that sells radio equipment just across the street from the mosque is really an FBI building. But no one knows for sure. Growing up, the kids in my neighborhood always joked about how paranoid our moms were. For me, it started in the early 90s, when two FBI agents knocked on our door and asked to speak to my mom. You said they came and they sat here for one hour. What did you talk about for one hour?
2: You know, you don't know them. How they, the same question you don't answer. They will say another one, and they enter the other, the third one, the four. Th- they make it? you. They make you. They make you confused. You start there, just saying stuff. Up. Oh, they will pick. How about this name? This one. He was my uh, my husband's friend. How is your relation with them? Ah, oh, talk about him. You know. Maybe they will. You will say a name, and I mean, they will go to him, and he's innocent, and. They, disaster you know that what they call it the they put like a microphone or how do you call it bug Bug. exactly each morning I will come and look under my table so I will look and said no I didn't see nothing the next day I will say, maybe I didn't see it I have to check again I would just look said no it's so small that I couldn't see it
1: how do you know the times where maybe you were just being paranoid and times where really something is happening? No,
2: excuse me, because everyone in the community was saying, they came, they came, they came, they came. And people are seeing from 7 o'clock to 10 o'clock doing what in the car? All this road uh, around the mosque, there is car there. So, come on, you know, we are not stupid, you know.
1: Perspective is a funny thing. Depending on where you're standing, you see things differently. My family moved to Bridgeview in 1992. At the time, a lot of Arab immigrants were moving to the area. A tight-knit community grew around the mosque. Soon after we moved here, my parents started hearing from neighbors about the surveillance. It was something everyone whispered about. But us kids never really knew what was going on. We wanted to find out what really happened here and why. So if we wanna go and talk to some people, Mm -hmm in the neighborhood we'll have stories who should we go to who are you going to send us to
2: i mean many Yani. maybe these neighbors all of them they received these people so
1: everyone has this so yeah yeah there's a lot of cars oh. Even, yani, <laughs> At first, we weren't having much luck. Some of my neighbors get weird around cameras. My mom suggested we go talk to some of the other housewives in the neighborhood.
3: Here, come this way. If you can get an angle, a little bit more, a little bit more.
1: Yeah, right there. See, now that the f- leaves fell off the bushes, it's visible the whole corner. Yeah, right to the corner. So, I just like right here, I just stand right here, and that damn car is always just parked right there. I want to take this,
3: you know, and open it for you guys. I could see the cars, I could see where they're parking.
2: First time we saw a car parked was the fall of 1990. There is a spot next to the stop sign over over there. Whenever we went, we saw the car. Every time I went for the groceries, I saw the car. When I dropped off the kids, I saw the car. You know, like the guys, you know, hiding themselves with the magazines. Teachers are the first arrivals in the morning. If you're
1: driving into the neighborhood, And there's already a car parked.
3: (laughs) I think we even might have named them, you know, (laughs) you know, like said, oh, Joe is on duty today or something. The boys will say, like, mom, don't say anything. The house has ears. And at the office, we we laugh and we say, the office has ears.
2: They put the camera in the corner by the railroad, so they watch all the area, all the people who goes out, all the people who comes in. There was a click on the phone and then we talked.
3: There's certain words that they're looking to pick up on the phone if you say it they're, you know words can be shaped and twisted. It wasn't too long ago when my kids were small you know to say oh it was the bomb. That was like the big word and we
2: couldn't use it and I had to tell my kids not almost like a swear word. you don't say that.
3: It's almost like there's a, a phone tree that goes ar- that goes around.
2: you know you tend to wonder did you
3: guys call you know the utility company? We start calling each other and say be careful. We see a van, we see a car. Do you think the neighborhood is still
1: under surveillance? Oh yeah,
3: no doubt. The FBI building is still the FBI building. (laughs) I don't believe it's not.
1: Over time, the surveillance has become such a normal part of living here that for my generation, it's a bit of an inside joke. The names of the Wi-Fi networks are a testament to this. Miriam, my little sister's friend, who grew up next door, had a few stories for us.
4: So I was sitting in a class once and we were doing introductions. It was the first day and then the professor says, explain or say, tell me something about your neighborhood in one word and then explain it." And I said, surveillance. They're like, what? What do you mean surveillance? And I'm like, I live in a predominantly Arab Muslim neighborhood and we're constantly being watched and listened to by the FBI.
1: How did people react?
4: They were surprised. They were like, what? People said things like, you know, Spanish food, you know? So it's a little bit unclear, but our mothers used to tell us when we first got our licenses that we should stop at the stop sign because there's a camera right here and it takes pictures of of you if you don't stop at the stop sign, Um, which was weird because we thought that was only for red lights and it's a residential area, so why put it there? It was a white rectangular box right on top of, a a little bit after the light on the top. And then this, wiring and then a white contraption box right there. Uh, it's not there anymore, but I did check on Google Maps and it's there. I can show you some mm-hmm. screenshots. Oh yeah? it's, it's there, it's on Google Maps, yeah. Wow. So I looked through all of the light posts in Bridgeview and none of them had that right there. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just being suspicious or, you know, oh. we're just trying to make sense of something.
3: It's,
0: uh, <clears throat> now, we should, I guess, clarify people so, so people don't think it's how weird that this entire community is paranoid, um, right? This is not uh, something that uh, people were just imagining. You, you discovered that, in fact, there was uh, an FBI investigation of that, uh, of that community.
1: Yeah. So the film really starts from the effects. Um, you know, we, there's a, this community that I grew up in, and everybody feels this way. <laughs> And the question is, something happened here to make everyone feel this way. And so we start from the effects, and we start from um, how uh, it's impacted people, how people, how it's impacted the way people see the world uh, around them. And we go from there and trace it back to the causes. We're still in the middle of the film, and there's not that much I can tell you about the investigation, but I can tell you that we discovered that in 1993, the FBI opened um, One of the largest domestic counterterrorism investigations before 9/11, and it uh, it was uh, largely focused on Bridgeview, Illinois, my neighborhood. So all of these are, you know, this is not just um, all of this comes from somewhere. And the film starts here with this, with the neighborhood and the perspective from the neighborhood, and it traces it back. It's really a investigative um, story that looks into this actual FBI investigation, what it was about, and why it caused what it caused in this neighborhood.
0: That's funny. I mean, this reminds me a little bit, in watching the, the appearing at windows. I remember the first time I, you know, despite being someone who's worked for a long time on surveillance issues, um, began feeling a, 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 a modicum of personal paranoia uh, about a month and a half before the first Snowden stories broke, I got a call from Glenn Greenwald saying, um, we've got this source, we think it might be a big deal. Can you help us uh, think about some of the information we've gotten uh, and, and, and help us analyze and contextualize it? Um, and I said, you know, sure I'd be happy to. And as soon as I realized the magnitude of the, uh, of the leak, I began thinking, well, it's not inconceivable that uh, if this is really a, an authentic leak of this size, um, I, you know, someone could show up at my door with a subpoena, saying we want to look through your hard drive to try and uh, look at your communications with these reporters. Um, what reassured me, I thought, was well, I worked for the Cato Institute, and uh, that would look really terrible. So at least that will provide some modicum of of shield. Um, but it's it's, uh, it's sort of fascinating to watch an entire community where that that sense is a sort of permanent fact. Uh, is is it your sense that? It, um, beyond this kind of background sense of eeriness, that uh, this affects people's willingness to speak out politically, to organize?
1: I think it has a lot of impa- impacts. You know, that, what you're saying, that feeling, we actually don't have a word in English for paranoia that comes from a justifiable place. Paranoia is actually a very path, you know, it's, it implies pathology. Uh, It implies, you know, that madness. But we don't have a word for when you feel that way um, because you have a good reason to. Surely there's
0: a German word. (laughs) Most (laughs) (laughs) likely. I mean, especially because um, the feeling of being watched, right, is not uh, just a kind of cultural phenomenon. I mean, if you ever see deer frozen in headlights, that is a hardwired, instinctive Mm -hmm. reaction to the perception of being perceived, of eyes on you, freeze when a predator looks at you. We have, um, I mean, dedicated modules in the brain that work on what's called gaze detection. Um, are their eyes looking at me? And so we see people's, research showing people's, just having eyes on posters on the walls changes people's behavior. Um, sometimes for the better, I mean, they don't litter. Um, but it is something that consciously or not, uh, influences their behavior. Someone who I think knows quite a lot about that is Faisal Gill, who also got a call from Glenn Greenwald. Uh, I suppose a little bit over a year ago now.
5: A little bit over a year ago, yeah. Uh, and
0: so, tell me, tell me. I guess, give me I guess, a little bit of the background there, and tell me what, uh, how how that went, how you learned that you had been targeted.
5: Well, I mean, as you said, I received a uh, call from Glenn Greenwald, and he said, "Are you Faisal Gill?" I said, "Yes, I am." He says, "I need to speak with you." I said, "Okay. What about?" I mean, obviously. By this time, I, you know I'd heard of Glenn Greenwald. I knew who he was. I was a little bit surprised that he was uh, calling me. He said, "Well, I can't talk to you about it over the phone. I need to see you in person." And um, just our schedules, we decided to meet up in New York. I met him in New York at a hotel. He was doing uh, his book tour, and uh, he said, "Is this your email address?" And he read me my email address. I said, "Yes, it is." He goes, "Well, I'm very sorry to tell you that uh, you were, for the last, from since 2006 to at least 2008." You were being monitored by the NSA. He showed me the documents that verified that, and you know I was a little bit surprised about that. He goes, "Well, your reaction is not what I would expect. I, I thought your reaction would be a lot more, you know, upset." I said, "Well, it." Uh, it what am I going to do, you know? I mean, it is, you kind of always have a little bit of sense, I mean, as you just said, that maybe it was going on, but I mean, as you said, you know, you work for the Cato Institute. I thought, well, wait a second, you know, I've held a, a top secret SCI clearance. I was a political appointee in the Bush administration. I worked in the White House in the Office of Homeland Security, then in the Department of Homeland Security. I've been completely vetted, you know, why would they want to monitor me? There's absolutely no way. But. You kind of have this feeling that maybe they, you know, maybe they do or maybe they want to monitor you and uh, That's when he told me he goes well We're doing a story and uh, we're gonna kind of do it about you as well uh, Since you have this uniqueness of being worked in the the government and then coming out and what is your uh, what are your thoughts on that? I said, okay uh, he goes, you do don't, you don't mind us doing a story. I said, well, I would obviously prefer you didn't. Um, it's kind of hard to get, a, you know, employed as a lawyer when you <laughs> are told that you, when your clients find out that you were being monitored by the NSA, um, doesn't really go well. However, you know, the last time this happened to me, I didn't speak up and I didn't, spe- and it didn't go well for me. So, if you're going to do a story anyway, then absolutely, I want to be involved and I want to tell my side, frankly, you know I did nothing wrong. I, there was nothing in my background that would lead uh, me to be the target of a FISA warrant, so there's, you know, or NSA to, to target me, so I will talk about it.
0: Now, just to give people some context, you, when you were at uh, DHS, I know you were publicly attacked by Frank Gaffney for having right. formally worked for a Muslim advocacy group that had uh, uh, some questions about fun- funding, um, but as a result of that, you were investigated at the time after having gone through the clearance process, uh, and. My understanding is that that ended uh, finding that you had been forthcoming, that uh, you were effectively cleared uh, in the aftermath of that. So do you? So, why then after you left the government? Do you have any idea no, why?
5: No, and that's the, I guess, the troubling part of all this. I mean, as you said, when I was in the Department of Homeland Security, they said that I'd lied on my security clearance forms. And there was absolutely, and what they said I lied about was I did not disclose that I worked for these Muslim advocacy groups. And I said, I did disclose it, I disclosed it on my ethics forms, I didn't have to disclose it on my uh, security clearance form because I was never employed by them. And I said, at that time when I was filling it out, I asked, hey, I was never an employee, should I write it down? And the people said, no, you don't have to write it down. In fact, not only do you not have to, it would be wrong for you to write it down, so I didn't do it. The ironic part of that is, that form is a private form and should not have been disclosed. The ethics form, where I did write down, not only did I write down that I work for the uh, Muslim advocacy groups, I also wrote down how much I received from each one. That is a public form FOIAble that's filled out by every political appointee. And I said, well, why don't you get those forms? That would have been there. I was cleared by the IG. Everybody said I did nothing wrong. After I left the Department of Homeland Security, I mean, obviously, all the investigations were on there. And, and as I said, it is difficult to get a job as a lawyer. I had a, uh, I was supposed to have a job at a, Pretty large DC law firm. That offer was yanked right afterwards. After all the uh, news stories about me came out that I lied on my security clearance form, so I was just working, you know, as a lawyer where I could get work. And a couple of places where I worked was uh, I wrote some memos and stuff for. Um, uh, like Sudan was one of the countries that was there was a civil lawsuit going on in the in DC at that time. And I assisted an attorney writing a memo. And that's you know, I never made an appearance, never did anything, but I did write it, and it was all, you know, through the Treasury Department. I had a license, OFAC license and everything. That literally is the only thing that I could have done. After that, I've, you know, been a just a general corporate attorney, there's absolutely nothing in my background that would lead someone to believe that I am either harboring terrorists, I have not left the country, God, for, for quite a bit of a long time, except to go to you know, say London or something like that, but I've never been to the Middle East. It's just incredible that there would be something in my background, and that's, um, that's the actual troubling part. And so you
0: haven't learned anything since that story broke about why you would have been targeted.
5: No, I mean the only thing the U.S. government, in, in fact, what the government said would even hurt me even more uh, when they, they were asked about this is what they you know, what could be in his background. They said, well, we just had here the uh, here's the reasoning for uh, FISA warrants. He either harbored terrorist activities, he visited someone who harbored terrorist activities, and that was it. And you're sitting there going, are you kidding me? There's absolute. I've taken a polygraph test. I've taken at least two polygraph tests that I can remember, I'm sure there's more, where nothing of that came sort. I mean, I, they said, you know, have you met anybody who's a terrorist? Have you uh, been in a room where terrorist activities were discussed? And I said, no, 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 and was passed of all polygraph tests. So despite that, the only thing that is, is that, again, I work for Muslim advocacy groups, and, you know, I was one of the many lawyers uh, who defended, uh, you know, Sudan in a civil lawsuit. Mm-hmm. That was it. I so mean,
0: do you do you feel? I mean, you've written in the Guardian that you think your faith played a role in uh, you're being targeted. Do you think do you feel like the bar is different when it comes to absolutely without
5: question? If my name was William Flanagan, I would not be here. I would not have been surveilled. I would not have. Uh, nobody would have said I, you know, lied on my security clearance forms or anything of that sort. If you're a Muslim attorney and you're involved in muslim advocacy groups or you represent someone who is you know either charged with terrorism or charged with any sort of thing there is an assumption, and I think it is an assumption by law enforcement, that you are a sympathizer. You sympathize with that group. You sympathize with that organization. When, you know, you might or you might not, but that has nothing to do with it. As a lawyer, you defend, you know, you, everybody deserves a defense. people who are in Boston right now, the Boston Marathon bombers. Nobody ever said, well, the attorneys there, do they sympathize with what the Boston Marathon bombers did? No. If it was me or somebody named Mohammed, I guarantee you that would have been the first lead story in just about every news paper is that you know Muslim attorney they, they would have been identified as that the Boston bombers and their Muslim attorneys said this and said that so it's it is uh, absolutely naive to say that my faith uh, did not uh, play a role in this
0: and do you feel like it's I mean that has that discovery um, changed any of your behavior in terms of the way you uh, you know what you what you're willing to write in emails or online or do you have a sense that it's uh, made your clients more skittish about whether the, their communications are being truly held in
5: common. Well, absolutely. It's made my clients, I mean, I, in fact, after that story came out, there were a few, uh, you know, a couple of clients who basically, you know, um, parted ways, mainly because they were worried about that their, our emails are not, um, you know, confidential and, and what's watching. And I just generally, clients are dealing with their own legal issues. They don't want a lawyer that's dealing with his own issues, whatever that might be. Uh, as far as what I write, yeah, sometimes I do think about it, you know, writing, mainly because you don't want to write something that, you know, other people might see. If it's an off-color joke you're having with a friend of yours, you don't want to sit there and, and write it. If you're disclosing something extremely personal, you know, to a family member or, you know, your spouse, you don't want to write it in an email, otherwise you would be. But the biggest effect that that's had is, you know, after the story about me came out, I received emails, Facebook messages, so many things, comments from other people saying, well, if you could be it, working for the Bush administration, being in the Navy, having a security clearance, then, you know, what hope do the rest of us have? And, you know, I was having... Uh, Dinner with a friend of mine who works in Capitol Hill and he said you are crazy for being involved in organizations I mean he goes I'm a ghost on the internet. I don't go to any events. I don't go to any place I don't speak out I go to work and I just stay completely out of the limelight and that's exactly What you need to do if you're a Muslim working in the government, and I just sat there thinking how sad is that?
0: Remember one of the one of the uh, there's a line from a New York Times story from a few years ago that I was covering the the NYPD's sort of Infiltration of Muslim student groups, and there was uh, that the at Columbia University, in the room where the Muslim student association met, there was a sign mm-hmm. that said something to the effect of, "Please don't discuss any controversial political Absolutely. opinions here. We don't want any trouble." Um, and I was just thinking, God, at, at a college where, right, um, you know, I mean, if it's almost a job to have uh, controversial political opinions as, as a, a Columbia student, um, that that would be something posted in the in, in the meeting room. Um, So I I want to turn to um, Jumani here to to try and contextualize this. I feel like if you're involved in debates about surveillance and privacy, uh, you can't go very long before you encounter some variant on the argument. Uh, Well, if you're not doing anything wrong, uh, what are you worried about? Um, I remember a a debate about a year ago with Ben Wittes from Brookings, um, where he made a, a, a variation on that argument saying, look, um The police could be in my home right now searching at you know pursuant to a warrant um but i just don't spend much time working on that i'm confident that they're out there to do their jobs and not uh you know and not and not harass people like me and I said no, not you know for me, I thought this was a, a sort of a check your privilege moment, not people like you probably Ben. um but <laughs> but that is that is you know I mean, a, a way I think that it becomes possible to speak um if you have the kind of privilege that lets you walk through a neighborhood without any kind of concern that uh, perhaps the police will pull me over for no reason. Perhaps I'll be frisked um, as a young man uh, who looks out of place in this neighborhood. Uh, Someone who is used to seeing police and thinking this is someone who's here to help me and protect me, uh, not someone who I've experienced as uh, as an intrusive force. And that the perception is just very different um, for communities that have a different kind of experience. Um, and I know, you know, if you look at the history of surveillance abuses in the U.S. going back to the Church Committee, it's very often been, um, for example, um, uh, Black civil rights leaders who were targeted. Um, so I was wondering if you could, you could sort of speak to uh, the history of surveillance and the and and how you see surveillance being tar- targeting either Muslims or or other groups um, that. In, in a way that may explain why uh, sometimes people who aren't doing anything wrong do feel like they have something to hide.
6: Sure, I, I love I get the whole history of surveillance. Um, five minutes. I, you know, I think it's what's important to remember. If we look at sort of this whole history of surveillance, is it didn't start even you know with the civil rights movement. It's really been a long-term project in the United States to control communities of color and to effectively quash dissent that challenge power structures. And so I say it goes back, it goes back as long as you people that have been here. And so if you look at even the project of enslaving Africans and bringing them to the United States, um, you know there was things that I think people forget about. Things like there was a free Negro registry. What that meant is in the early 1800s if you were in Virginia you could stop any non-white person and ask for their papers to see if they're allowed to be walking around. So, national ID card. I know that was something that was a big issue post 9 11. People said, oh, we can't have a national ID card. Um, you know, people had to have ID cards, again, if you were a person of color, not if you were a white person. Um, and then you, know, you can look sort of through history what happens after slavery. Right? So now you know, we don't have slavery anymore. We had black codes, which effectively controlled how black people could operate, what, they, you know, what kind of property they could own, how they could move about. We had things called vagrancy laws which was a way to basically re-enslave people without calling it slavery. So if you didn't have a job, and you were loitering or a vagrant, you could be arrested. And then once you were arrested, you could be sentenced to then work. Um, so it's sort of a, a, the, the back-end way of, of controlling the community. And I think you know, as you sort of move forward through history, um, the Alien Registration Act, where anybody who was not a citizen had to be uh, fingerprinted and, and registered. Um, and it's also just to sort of footnote that, at, there was a point in the late, I think it was like 1790, where it was defined you had to be white to be a citizen. So you had the Alien Registry Act. You had you know, sort of the really visible ways in which communities were targeted, like Japanese internment. Um, I think we all know what that was about, but I think that there's sort of the flip side to that, where obviously we, as, as the United States, this country fought against the Nazis in Germany. Well, there was the Bund here in the United States, a whole group of Germans that were you know, vehemently supporting the Nazis and and spouting Nazi rhetoric right here in the United States. And they certainly weren't rounded up and they weren't in turn. And so, you know, again, this sort of idea of collective guilt usually lies at the feet of communities of color and not necessarily white communities, right? White shooters we see these days are these lone wolves, these outliers, somebody who had emotional issues. Um, You know, if there's a Muslim shooter, it's a terrorist. If there's a black shooter. So, you know, I mean, I think these things have manifested over time and it's important to remember. Uh, Certainly when you saw the civil rights movement, it was, it was definitely a threat to the power structure. There was, and you know, the history of the infiltration of the groups. It's not just spying on Martin Luther King, but all of the groups. It's not something that stopped. You know, we saw this post 9-11 where they weren't even just spying on people who might, they might be afraid were terrorists. They were spying on anti-death penalty groups. They were spying on uh, anti-war groups in the 80s. They were spying on anti-apartheid groups. There was, you know, the, the United States has been involved in this enterprise pretty much as long as it's been around. And I think, you know, what's interesting to me, just even in listening to the two of you, um, you know, I've said it before, I've said it to people when, you know, it was first revealed that the United States might be listening to people's phone calls. Um, You know, I'm an Arab, (laughs) Muslim in our community. Everyone was like, yeah, welcome. (laughs) We knew this. This is not news. Nobody felt like it was news. It's not like my mother called me and was shocked. What? They're listening to my phone calls. This was something to us that we had already sort of accepted as normal way of life. And I think that that's, sort sure, of the critical key to remember is particular communities experience the government different, they experience surveillance different, so they're not just thinking about what they say, but I even think about the way we've internalized things, because I'm listening to you and you said, I haven't even traveled to the Middle East. I do all the time. <laughs> I have a lot of family there. I go fairly regularly. It's the most common pa- uh, stamp in my passport. My kids have already gone, and they're only two and four, so you know, this is not that's not actually criminal behavior. <laughs> and I think that's, that's the thing that gets lost. It is not criminal behavior to go to, to travel to any Arab country. Um, You know, right now, maybe to Syria because that's the way they're treating it. But in general, it is not criminal behavior to go to an Arab country. It is not criminal behavior to go to a mosque. It's not criminal behavior to leave your house. But I think, you know, the other piece of thinking about this is again, this is not even just a post 9 11 thing, it's not just a Muslim thing. I think it's important to look at also the way the criminal justice system has evolved, which is a huge tool of surveillance, and not just in the sense of what happens before someone gets arrested. I think there's that very present surveillance every day in communities of color, particularly low-income communities of color, but it affects pretty much anybody of color in terms of the way that they interact with the police. But I think that other thing that's important to remember is there's also a whole series of things that happens to you if you've been in jail and once you come out of jail on the way you exist. So before you go into jail, and I'll tell you a story, I, I was talking to a woman who lived in New York. You know, Very few people drive in New York. right? Everybody just hops on the subway. And so her son, her teenage son, was leaving to go to work. And like 10, 15 minutes later, he came back home. She said, so why did you come home? He said, I didn't have my license. He's not driving. He was not driving, but he was very aware of the fact that he might be stopped, he might be frisked, he might be asked about why was he in this neighborhood, why does he belong here. That is not something that you know, people with a certain amount of privilege have to think about. They don't think about, oh, I've left the house without my license as I go walk down to take the metro because you don't need it, you don't need it, (laughs) you don't need it. I just feel like I have to say it a couple of times because I think sometimes we forget. So you're already immediately treated as suspect, you get into the system, and what is your experience when you get out of the system? Well, if you're in Virginia and committed a violent felony, you can't have a driver's license. So if you're in this area, you get on Metro, you have a smart trip card, you're tracked everywhere because you have no other option. I mean, you could pay for the paper card, but now you're just out of jail. You might not have the money to spend an extra dollar on you know, each way as they charge you a metro. Um, so there's just all these ways in which, you know, it's not just the actual tracking, right? But some people come out and they're on ankle braces, they're on house arrest, they are uh, having to check with a parole officer, they can't drink, even if they're over 21 and it's legal behavior, you can't drink. Um, the issue with the car, by the way, again, it's not because you have you know, vehicular manslaughter or DWI or something like that. It's just a condition that they tack on. So there's just a number of ways in which the system encounters people. There's the healthcare system, which is also a tool of surveillance in particularly low-income communities and communities of color. And so uh, you'll see women in the South who are going to get prenatal exams who are, sometimes without their knowledge and sometimes against their will, getting drug tested. Um, you know, again, this is not something that happens at Sibley Hospital, um, but this is something that happens generally, again, to low-income, and low-income communities and communities of color where they're then, if drugs are found in the system and it it's not a health problem, it is considered uh, child endangerment they're now criminalized, right? So maybe someone is dealing with addiction, but rather than being seen as someone dealing with addiction, they're being criminalized. Um, rather than when the heroin epidemics hit largely white areas, it becomes a public health concern. And so I think all of these narratives, which I know seems very scattered, but it tends to create a system in which particular communities engage differently in, every, in everyday life, right? What you put in your email, what you say on the telephone, what you think you can do when you walk out the door, your ability to shop in Georgetown. I don't know if any of you saw the recent article in the Washington Post, but they had a whole app set up to track, you know, burglars. And what that meant was, heads up, there's black people shopping in Georgetown. Because 85-90% of people who ended up in the app were black people who apparently do not belong in Georgetown and certainly don't shop. Um, you know, but if if that is your experience and how you deal with the state every day, the idea of surveillance becomes very different. And I think To me, one of the more dangerous conversations we have about surveillance is not just the, well, what do I care? I'm not doing anything, what's the big deal? Um, I think that's one piece of it. But then, in all the remedy conversations, we talk about, what about all the innocent people they're collecting information on? What about the innocent people? That's really where we need to focus. I think the bigger problem is, what about all the people who are being victimized by this system of surveillance? So we talk about mass data collection, right? They're collecting a lot of information. Should they be collecting my personal information, even if, you know, my family is European and came over on, landed on Plymouth Rock and you know, my name is Jane Smith or whatever it is and all of those things you can strip away. <laughs> the Palestinian, the Muslim, the, she works on all these crazy things, she says crazy things on panels, strip all that away. I look like that person who shouldn't have to worry. And then yeah, I mean there's already a fundamental problem that you know I may be emailing my sister about something very personal. I may be calling you know, clinics to find out something very personal. But I think you need to take the next level, which is what do they do with all the information they collect? They data mine it. <laughs> they data mine it. And use it for prosecutions. They data mine it. And use it for investigations. And so it is coming back to these communities where you don't know why there's a camera <laughs> at your stop sign where your bus stops, or you know you don't feel like you can travel to the Middle East, or you know all the things that go along with that. You don't feel like you can shop in Georgetown, um, you know, without having to protect yourself. Yeah, the,
0: so the, the this I think the in a way what we're talking about here is is the idea of insecurity and in this. Uh, suggesting a kind of a connection, maybe with uh, Laura Donahue's remarks earlier. Um, you know, we, we tend to re- the, the word "secure," security is in the Fourth Amendment. It's not the right just to be free from unreasonable searches; it's the right to be secure against unreasonable searches. And modern jurisprudence tends to sort of treat that as a rhetorical flourish, not as something that had real meaning. But if you look at, for example, James, James Otis's writing at the time, one of the things he's, he said to condemning the general warrant is. Um, is that since these were installed, and since this uh, writ uh, uh, came into wide use, every freeholder in the land feels himself less secure than before these, uh, these writs had any such existence among us. Um, the idea there being that it wasn't just the actual invasion, though of course there was that of having your home come into that, uh, the sense of pervasive insecurity, knowing that there was an authority that would permit someone whenever they felt like it if they decided you were suspicious, to come into your home, as though your home was sort of perpetually invadable. Um, And so when we talk about searches, uh, I I don't know if we talk enough about the effect that's created not just at the individual level, but sometimes at the the community level. Um, But I wonder now whether there's in some sense, uh, a point of no return. I mean, I know when I, when I write about surveillance reform, one of the, the um, replies I find I encounter a lot is, well, why are you bothering uh, whatever laws we pass, they'll just keep doing what they want. And I think that's probably a little bit too pessimistic. I, I think you can see that, in fact, sometimes, sometimes you can rein stuff in. Um, <laughs> but I do wonder, you know, I mean, is, is this something we can fix with policy, because it does seem like there's a point where people are sufficiently convinced of surveillance, surveillance is secret by nature, that I, I almost wonder, is there, is there a way out? Is there a way back to a feeling of security? Uh, even, if you, even if you actually reformed the policy to make, uh, you know, to, to make surveillance more limited in its use, is there a way to rebuild that sense of security and trust?
5: Sure. No, look, I think there are lots of policies that can be uh, done. Just using my example, the FISA court, the FISA warrants. Right now, you have the secret court that meets in the basement. You have just you know, the Department of Justice attorneys going there and filling out a warrant and filling out an application, and that's about it. And then they present it, and, you know, and surprise, surprise, 98% of them are approved. You know, there is no check and balance system there. If you, if you, and I don't say, you know, you get defense attorneys, but if you had, say, the Federal Public Defenders Program, and I think that's what needs to happen, challenging those warrants, at least presenting uh, another view of it, I do believe that there will be more and more of those warrants that won't be granted. I mean, that's what needs to happen. Our entire criminal justice system is based on the adversarial system, yet at this stage, there is nothing there. Now, the counter argument to that as well you know any warrant you get for any sort of crime the defense attorney is never there you know the police always go there they fill out the the affidavit and the judge grants the warrant the key 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 difference there is at a later time, the defense attorney has a, ch- a chance to challenge that warrant, and if they're if it's held not you know um, not to have probable cause, then all the evidence is seized. That doesn't happen in the FISA court mm-hmm. here. It meets in secrecy. There, all the other courts don't meet in secrecy. So there are, there are uh, quite a bit of meaningful reforms that can be done in the beginning, and that's the key portion here, from my uh, from my perspective. You know, once it's out there that I was surveilled, that's it. Nothing I can say, nothing I can do will ever change anything because there is always a view that people say, well, maybe there was something there. You know, For the majority of the people who don't have the experiences that, say, we do in our community, the government is good, the government is doing the right thing, the government is protecting us. So if the government thought there was something wrong with him, there's at least something there, and that's, that's a feeling that just never goes away. Mm-hmm.
0: And, of course, the nature of intelligence is, is they don't have to you know, exactly. charge you with a crime, um, and so I mean, they can they really say, well, we have all sorts of intelligence. We're not going to make it public, um, and so it, I suppose it makes it sort of very difficult because there's nothing specific to rebut. They can't say, we thought you were linked to someone for this reason, and right. you can say, you know, well, actually, no, here's why, or uh, although... Perhaps even the, the the feeling like you have to explain or justify yourself is, is part of.
5: Well, you're the- left just scrambling your brain and saying, "Okay, what did I? What could I have done? What could I have done in my background that would, you know, lead me to believe lead someone to believe that I was involved with terrorism?" I mean. Crying out loud, if you look at my background, it's always been in the government. Why would I be, you know, involved in in some sort of terrorist activities? Where would I have a chance to? So you're kind of left with just thinking, is there anything else I could do? I mean, you know, traveling to the Middle East, you're absolutely right. It's not a criminal act. But you sit there and go, okay, I don't want to travel to the Middle East because now there's some intelligence agency thinking, aha, we told you, here's a guy who's, you know, traveling to the Middle East, spending his summers there. We know there's a reason to surveil him. Mean, you just don't do it.
0: I see, do you have i mean do you have a sense uh, I mean it sounds like you at le- at least confirmed that there was real you know real surveillance definitely happening at some point in the nineties there was a genuine investigation um it seems like there's a persistent continuing belief that surveillance is happening directly to the community. Um, it may be impossible to know whether that's that's true or not um but I mean I guess do you have a sense of that uh diminishing with time or Um, Or is that something that you think is, is, I mean, just sort of so taken for granted that it's like the sun comes up in the morning and we're under surveillance?
1: Yeah. um, You know, it's very interesting. We know that this particular FBI investigation into the neighborhood that all the surveillance came from probably ended around 2006 or so. So, you know, ostensibly for the past 10 years, there hasn't been any overt surveillance in the neighborhood. And yet... um, the younger generation of kids, my little brother who's 18 years old, um, still is, you know, if you ask any of them, they're, you know, it's just something that is part of the narrative that um, there's, you know, this whole neighborhood has been painted with this red paint that kind of doesn't come off. Uh, and it's not just the way other people see us, but it's also how we see ourselves as people that will probably always be under surveillance or always have a reason to be paranoid. And that's very problematic. Um, And I think, I'm just a journalist and a filmmaker, I don't know very much about policy, I'm not a lawyer, but um, this is problematic for the FBI also because when you have an entire neighborhood and community that has this lack of trust, I mean people in this neighborhood do not call the police for certain reasons because of their their lack of trust in law enforcement. Um, when that happens, you know, right now there's a lot of focus on CVE, this countering violent extremism, this, um, the, you know, federal government trying to team up with community, Muslim communities around the country to work on this problem together. And it's not working. And the reason is because the FBI has been coming in through the back door for so long, nobody trusts them to let them in the front door. And this lack of trust between Muslim American communities in this country and law enforcement is a problem for both for the communities and for law enforcement. And so these policies, uh, I think the policies in the 90s and after 9-11 have in many ways uh, hurt the current policy, which can't be effective because there is no cooperation. uh, There's not trust. There's a lack of trust in many ways. And there's a, a lot of work that has to happen there.
0: I have many, many uh, things that I, I could I could follow up on there, but I want to uh, let the audience uh, have can an opportunity. I just follow up to... on one
6: thing though, because I think sure. this question yes. of is it policy, is it something else? I mean, I think there is policy that can make difference, but I also think, and you know, I know this gets a little philosophical, but we just have to confront this idea of what is American and whiteness in America, because right now, you know, these laws don't get passed, these programs don't happen because good Americans are being surveilled. It's because you know, Mexicans are invading you know, from the southern border and so therefore we need to do all these things in the southwest. There's Muslims all over the country, we need fusion centers. There's you know, black people and Latino people causing trouble and so we need gang databases, we need officers in school. We need all these things that always start with because these other people who are not as American as you, white people, are doing something fishy. Don't worry, it's not for you. But, you know, until we can reckon that idea of who is American and who is not American and or less American, who has rights and who is not as deserving of rights, I mean, you can see it even as, as something as, you know, seemingly silly as Miss America. But I don't know if you remember when an Indian American woman won Miss America, Nina Devalari, who ironically is my father's friend's daughter. He was there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but... Suddenly, everyone's just like, "What do you mean? She won Miss America? She's not American!" And you know, people are posting pictures of I think it was Miss Kansas in a camouflage bikini with her blonde hair, holding her gun, and that's a real American. And so, you know, it, it, until we can come to terms with this idea of American and what is American, and you know, the idea that you can separate out people for collective guilt versus individual responsibility, you can separate out, um, you know, sort of who's deserving versus not deserving. It's going to be very easy to get these laws through because it's always going to come in moments of crisis. Um, or sometimes quietly behind the scenes and targeted not at you, mm-hmm. not at you. It's okay. And so you know, I think that's sort of the larger fault line. And so I think that there has to be a policy fix, but there also has to be sort of the larger reckoning of this country's sort of experiment in race and enforcement.
0: This is maybe an analogy with, with the drug war, where you know there 's plenty of legislators who are voting for you know ever more draconian uh, drug penalties and enforcement. No, you know, maybe their, their college-age kid is, is out, you know, smoking a, a joint or, or or doing a line, but, you know, that, that person is never going to be uh, on, the, on the receiving end of those punishments. Or they are. <laughs> right? uh, uh, so someone else is the one who's going to be punished. It's not my kid. Um, so let's, let's actually turn to the audience now and see if we have uh, some questions. My colleague John Mueller there uh, is, is uh, in the back.
1: Yeah, I'd like to put in a word for another victimized group, which is the taxpayer uh the New York Police uh, Department uh, spends hundreds of thousands of dollars a year publicizing it's if you don't if you uh, see something say something registered trademark uh, slogan and it's caught zero terrorists. They have pub crawlers which have been going on for years and years and years paying uh, paying people to crawl through the pubs have found nothing. Uh, in other words, a total waste of money, effectively. The 215 program has had essentially the NSA TO-15 program has basically come up with nothing. And so what outrages me as a non-Muslim is that I'm paying for this nonsense. Uh, and you might, it's not nearly as bad as obviously being victimized in the more direct sense, but it seems to be that ought to be built into the equation somewhere along the line.
0: Actually, let's i uh, just follow up on that a little bit. I mean, I remember being in New York a little while back and seeing on the subway they have those... Uh, those uh you know ads saying last year fifteen thousand twenty thousand people saw something and said something They're calling in this line to report whatever activity uh, and I' saying like, well they don't t- they don't tell you how many of those times it was something um that's not the that's not a number that's included um and I wonder you know part of part of the uh, the sort of Counterterrorism and security campaign has been this idea of if you see something, say something. Um, I have to imagine that much like the, the app in Georgetown that uh, uh, you were discussing, mm-hmm. um, that's got to disproportionately lead to a flood of information coming in. That, you know, I saw someone with a burqa in my neighborhood. Um,
6: saw guys with beards, dark-skinned guys with beards, taking pictures of a water aquifer, yeah. which is actually one of the reports.
0: I mean, is this, is this, I wonder if this is something, I don't know how engaged you guys are in, in uh, The kind of groups that would get complaints about this, but I mean, do you have a sense that uh, that people in these communities are getting visits based on this sort of spurious stuff?
5: People have. Yeah, I mean, I've received calls from uh, many folks who say, "Hey, I've gotten visits from the FBI. What should I do?" And it's always, you know, they were asking a question about a person they saw or somebody having a, a, you know, a conversation of, of. that was completely innocuous. But if they're talking I remember one call I got and they said they came and talking to me about this person who had been talking about dams quite a bit. And it just turned out that the guy was, you know, a tourist, just wanted to visit the Hoover Dam and he wanted to find out, you know, is there any other thing other dams that are like the Hoover Dam in the United States. But it's so yeah, I mean absolutely in the community you get various calls from people who are, you know, either sitting at a you know, what was it in Florida? I think it was the Folks in IHOP who are sitting there and talking. So, you, you community is definitely getting quite a bit of visits. And, and again, it would be very interesting to see how many of those things do actually lead to something, which I don't Get think Get ejected
6: off the plane for talking about airplane Absolutely. safety while being Muslim. I mean, there's, you know, the lists go on. People have been deported.
0: Although, so. one of the things you found was, you know, perhaps the, the part of the reason we don't have a sense that this is a, a pervasive problem is that when you went to ask people, you know, do you feel like you're being unfairly targeted or surveilled, they didn't want to, I mean, they were worried about sticking their heads out um, well yeah
1: th- i mean that's that's one of the effects that people you know people who have been in this neighborhood in particular watched for 20 years are very uncomfortable around cameras and you know, uh, very uncomfortable talking openly about what happened. A lot of people say, you know, it's, it's over. It's something that happened then. And why dig it up again? Why make an issue about it? Things have kind of settled. Why are you talking about this now? And the, and the idea is that this was a part of our history. This was part of our American experience. This was an American experience. And it's something that ought to be talked about. And still in my neighborhood, it's kind of like, you know, something you talk about in whispers. It's not something you talk about out loud. And and the idea is that talking out loud about this, it kind of uh, dispels the sense of shame, I think, that a lot of our immigrant parents had when they were visited by the FBI. And this is something that was really prevalent in my neighborhood. If the FBI came to your house, you were super embarrassed about it. You didn't tell anybody else. It was something you kept quiet about. And the idea is that, no, we should speak out about these. This is not something we should stay quiet about. And talking about it kind of dispels this fear that, that keeps it going, you know, that keeps it um, the way
3: it is right now. Uh,
0: other questions, in, uh, in the back there.
3: Hi, my name is Khadidia. My father was a Muslim and my mother is a Christian. And uh, it's only in this country that being a Muslim is a problem um you, i'm a foreigner and i didn't understand how discmi- discrimination was such a big problem in this country because i was always in dc and i spent five years in georgia oh my goodness <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean i had my white friends very good friends when i decided to leave they said please leave when you're a woman, it's a problem. When you're black, it's a problem. When you're whatever, it's a problem. then one of my white friends told me, you know, we do things here, but not to foreigners. And I was like, eh? You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> you have to understand that people look at the USA like the number one country, but overseas, we know that there's discrimination in this country, and it is just too much. I have this uh, American student who went to Australia for an exchange program. He came back, a white kid, very nice. He said, Madam, that was so difficult to be an American student overseas because of the perception people have about this country. Whatever you're saying, people already know that, is just a little bit too much. I think that is a problem of privileges and it's... Policies cannot change it unless people want to change their mindset. You can do whatever it has. It's not just merciful; it's just the way it is. I think you can do it, but it's going to be a long, long road. Okay. Thank you.
0: So let's. I guess actually riffing on the uh, the international aspect there, because she she touched on this idea of international perception, uh, and I wonder to what extent. Um, it is, you you talked about visiting the Middle East, but uh, to what extent either um, you think people in Arab or Muslim communities in the U.S. either become anxious about having too much contact with relatives and friends abroad and the extent to which uh, people abroad um, feel more anxious about communicating uh, with, with friends and relatives in the U.S. either because they uh, are not, not confident those, those communications are secure or, or for other reasons.
5: I, you know, I think I think there is a some sense that I'm not saying that you know Muslim Americans and Arab Americans are not traveling overseas and are not you know talking with with family overseas. I have family that I talk to on a fairly regular basis. However, some institutions have. I mean, I I do get calls uh, from uh, mosques in various communities, you know, who if they do fundraising, and they're very mindful of where the money is coming from. And again, there is nothing illegal about for a mosque to get money from overseas or an overseas place um, You know, for something that they're doing. Or relatives, you know, people will have relatives that are overseas and they want to give money, but they're very mindful of, of we want to make sure that we can account for every single last penny. And especially if money is coming from overseas, how is that going to be accounted for? Is it you know, is it dealt with? How do we do it? I mean, and, and there's a there's a one Mazda, um, a family member of mine was involved with the fundraising and they just cut it out altogether because they were very nervous that something was going to happen. They don't know what was going to happen and it didn't matter if me or other lawyers uh, told them that. They just, didn't want to do it, so I do think it has affected some, you know, some behavior. Where I really think it's affected is just the the perception of Muslim Americans overseas or Muslims overseas of the Muslim Americans here.
0: Their perception. How, so, can you catch that out a little bit?
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, for a long time, and, I, and I'm one of them, you know, who would say, "Oh no, it's not bad here. It's it's fine. We're 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 not." You know, surveil that much, and I would use myself as an example. I said, "Look, I'm in the heart of it all. You know, I'm working in Department of Homeland Security after 9/11. I'm working in the White House, and, and I did not experience discrimination. And you know, there's living; it's not as bad as you as you uh, think." After a lot of the things that happen after, and not just my story, others—the surveillance in New York program was, was, you know, the biggest example of it. People overseas, Muslims overseas, Arabs overseas are saying, "See, we told you. You guys are just naive. You will never be." I mean, as you brought up, American. No matter how long you've had U.S. citizenship, doesn't matter if you're born here, doesn't matter if your kids are born here, you're not American.
6: And I think just to piggyback on that, I think we sort of forget. You know, we're talking about. Snowden revelations, but I think we're forgetting what the direct aftermath of 9-11 was like, which was literally people disappearing from homes, homes being raided, people de- getting taken into custody, any immigration reason they could find, being put in detention facilities, and their family going to that detention facility being told, I'm sorry, we have no record of that person here, even though they had gotten a letter from that facility saying, you know, I'm in Metropolitan Detention Center. Um, you know, I think we're forgetting about NCS, which is a national security entry and exit registry system, which required people in present in the United States to go in and register on certain days if you were from certain countries. Um, curiously enough, almost some majority countries and North Korea, because <laughs> there's tons of immigrants from North Korea in the United States. So, and, and literally people going to register as they were told they had to, um, and then being taken into custody, not coming home, being stuffed into jail cells. The things like there was actually something called the October Plan around the second Bush election, where in the months right before the election, you want to talk about quashing political speech. Um, you know, people had visits for interviews from the FBI, and they were going into Arab and Muslim neighborhoods, South Asian neighborhoods, to interview people. Um, you know, there's a lot of of both sort of immediately frightening things, and there is a lot of you know other types of tactics that would call dissent. And like I said, though, I think it's important to remember this is not just a Muslim experience. A Muslim experience is sort of you know, another experience to add to all the experiences of communities of color in the United States. And I think if you're in the Southwest and you're a Latino person, you are used to roving checkpoints, set checkpoints, border patrol checkpoints, being stopped if you're going through the border crossings, which a lot of people do because they have family in Mexico and they go back and forth. If you're in Ote Mesa, you're now subject to facial recognition, iris scans, these things are, have gotten to be very normalized for particular communities, and so it's gotten far enough that, you know, again, you say checkpoints in the United States. Yes, absolutely, fixed checkpoints in the interior, manned by Border Patrol, where if you're going to go down that highway, you're going through the checkpoint. If they're going to stop and question you, you know, probably you look Latino or otherwise somehow not American, um, you know, which translates to not white. And things happen, such as just recently, uh, this was in New Mexico, I believe, someone was going through a checkpoint to go to his daughter's soccer game because you can't get there without going through the checkpoint. And uh, I don't, I don't know if they had a license plate reader. They came back and told him that they were taking him into custody because his registration was suspended because he had some unpaid parking ticket. He didn't even get the notice of that ticket till a few days later. It showed up at his house that his his registration was suspended. So if you can imagine that this becomes part of your normal life, where you are, you know, you have to go out, go through checkpoints, you have to know about things before you're even told, you know, that might get you stopped and arrested. Where it's really beginning. You know, the idea of the surveillance state is not just the theoretical of is your metadata being captured, is your email being captured, but your ability to move around in your neighborhood where you live to do everyday things, to go to the store, to go shopping, to go to your daughter's soccer game, to go pick up your kids from school, to do whatever normal life requires has extra barriers and extra layers of difficulty and could end you up, you know, you could end up being um, beaten, arrested, detained, deported because you're trying to go through sort of an operating everyday life. And I think that's that's the, um, the sort of the logical conclusion of where all this goes. It's not just sort of a mythical reality, but it is the actual lived experience of a lot of communities, and it's not, it's not one that's contained.
0: There's obviously a lot there we could do another hour easily, but I'm afraid we've uh, reached the end of our a lot of time for this panel, so please join me in thanking, uh, thanking our panelists.